The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the beast herself, Tammy, the Gert Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, Tam. Did you have fun escorting me to the urgent care today? Yeah, that was loads of fun. Always a thrill. They would have let me give you a shot in the ass, but no. They would have, man. I feel like shit. I can't have any perks. I have Percocets. <laughs> Those <are> my perks. <laughs> Yeah. Good times. Good times. All right, Bonding so that, experience, I tell you. That's more like a bondage experience, but okay. <laughs> I dig, Greg. Let's get into part three of the West Memphis Three. Okay. Take her away. Do a little recappy cappy. Yeah, well, I to recap that um, basically it was a one-sided trial because <laughs> they wouldn't allow the defense to present anything that would have been in favor of them. And they, the state called their expert witness was that guy who received his doctorate via the mail. Remember? The cult cop? Yeah, he probably has a mail order bride, too. Yeah, that was like trying to say all this stuff was, you know, cultish in nature when it was said that, no, that's not even true. Um, so now, and the, there were other suspects that could have been, you know, looked at in this case, but the cops didn't do that. They just went solely after Davian, right? Right. Okay, there's also other... Well, hold on. Damien was the one that's slightly retarded, right? No, no, that's Jesse. Oh, okay, Jesse was the slow Yeah, one. Okay, he was gotcha. the one that gave the confession. And then Damien <coughs> was the one, that, the 18-year-old that got death sentence. Right, okay, I'm, I'm caught Right. Up and I don't even get into what happened to these poor kids once they got to prison. You know, it was horrible. They were, you know... But um, before Jesse's trial, his attorney asked the... West Memphis Police Department, whether a criminal profile had been made on this case, they told him no. But it was after the trial he learned that that was a lie. So the FBI actually had presented the West Memphis PD with a cursory profile in the form of a survey to be conducted to trace any Vietnam vets in the area at the time of the murders. And that determination was made solely on the nature of the injuries to Christopher Byers' genitals as they were not given all of the crime scene reports that are required for an in-depth profile. So Sidham tried to procure the services of a reputable and qualified criminal profile before the trial took place, but because he had lacked resources that, you know, he couldn't get it done. After the three men were convicted, though, convicted and sentenced, he did uh, secure the services of Brent Turvey, um, who actually agreed to take the case on pro bono. And Brent Turvey has a Master of Science degree and is a highly qualified and experienced forensic scientist and criminal profiler. And he didn't get it through the mail or anything? No. Okay, making no. sure. Yeah, just making sure. Just checking. <coughs> but, um, and since he was based out of California, he had not even heard about this case. And so, according to his criminal profile, it revealed many areas of physical evidence which were missed or misinterpreted by the medical examiner or and coroner in this case and overrules many of the assumptions made by the police as to the nature of these murders. If all of this information had been available when the police initiated their investigation, its outcome probably would have been very different. Um, in this case, Turvey bases report on a forensic examination of all the available crime scene and autopsy photos, a crime scene video, investigator reports, witness statements, family statements, and autopsy reports. 
Now, the purpose of this report is to, quote, assess the nature of the interactions between the victims and their environments as it contributed to their death, as indicated by available forensic evidence and the documentation regarding that evidence. Now, after he examined the evidence that was available, he revealed a number of evidentiary points which had not been noticed during the earlier exams. The most important of these was his opinion, you know, the knife patterns, the serrated knife patterns. Right. All over Stephen Branch's face. Right, right. Were not the result of an attack with a serrated edge knife, as was originally believed. They were actually, though. Do you know what they were? Can you guess? I'm going to guess he's dragged or there's like branches or something like that. No, bite marks. Oh. This opinion was confirmed by Dr. Thomas David, a certified forensic odontologist who identified the marks as being human adult bite marks. An odontologist, for those of you that don't know. Odontologist. is a, is a, a they, they specialize in bite wounds and, yeah. and, and bite yes. in, in, in general. That's how they beat, that's how they nailed Ted Bundy, remember? Taking a bite out of crime, yeah. like McGruff. Yeah. Um, after comparing these marks with bite impressions obtained from Jesse, Jason, and Damien, Dr. G- David gave his expert opinion that they did not match. Now, bite marks are extremely useful in identifying a perpetrator of a crime because they can be as unique as a fingerprint. And then the, the um, marks on Christopher Byers' inner thigh were suction-type bite marks. Okay. Gotcha. Now, also on Christopher Byers was the impression of the knife handle on the right side of the wound in the genital area. And it's not known, it is not known at the time of, you know, whether this impression had been compared to the two knives presented at the trial as possible murder weapons. Now, Turvey described these injuries as having been brought about by forceful, violent thrusts, which were neither skilled nor precise, but were rageful, careless, and purposeful. Another unidentified pattern compression abrasion was found on the back of Stephen Branch's head, which Turvey believes is consistent with a footwear impression. He recommended that a footwear impression expert analyze the impression and make a more precise determination. Um, and it's not known whether that was done or not. Uh, the final piece of physical evidence, which had not been thoroughly analyzed at the time of the trials, was a piece of torn cloth found in the hand of James Moore. Now, Turvey believes that this piece of cloth may be a potential link between the victims and their assailant. And for this reason, it needs to be fully examined by a qualified person. Now, he concluded, uh, the conclusions that he drew from the evidence available were, the site where the bodies were found was a dump site only and not the primary crime scene. It's more likely that there were actually four scenes involved in this crime. The abduction site, the attack site, the vehicle used to transport the boys, and their bikes, and then finally the dump site in the woods. Now, the extent of the injuries to the victims, especially the emasculation of Christopher Byers, would have meant a great deal of blood would have been at the scene. In this situation, there was hardly any. There were there were also search parties moving through the area, which, not, which would not have given the assailant the time needed to carry out the attack without being disturbed. The nature of the injuries to Christopher Byers would have caused him to scream, and no scream was heard by searchers or local residents. There were no mosquito bites on any of the bodies, which would be expected if they had been in the woods for a period of time that would have been required to carry out the attack. And James Moore had an unexplained directional pattern abrasion just below the right anterior shoulder area. And this abrasion was created by a forceful directional contact with something that was not found at the crime scene. 
And the nature of the attack required light, time, and uninterrupted privacy. It was dark. The crime scene would, be, would more likely be a secluded structure or residence away from the immediate area of attention. Now, he said the assailant was someone known and trusted to the victims. This, the physical evidence, crime scene, and victimology in this case are most consistent with a classification of a battered child or child custodial homicide. Okay? Puts a new spin on things. The fact that there were three children together suggested would have been would have been difficult for the offender to take all three unless he was able to gain their trust. The children would have been taken to another location before the attack began, which implies a level of trust also, and that intimidation and fear would have been factors in gaining control, suggesting that the assailant was much longer, larger and stronger. The violence and level of force in this attack was punitive in nature, indicating that the offender was punishing the boys for some real or perceived wrong. The difference in the nature of injuries in the three boys indicates that the assailant had a different relationship with each of them. Now, James Moore is described by Turvey as a collateral victim who was probably only attacked because he was with the other two. Now, the severity of the blows to his head and the lack of damage from the ligatures on his ankles and wrists suggest that he was unconscious throughout the attack. And the anger of the assailant manifested in victim damage and sexual mutilation is directed primarily at Stephen and Christopher, indicating a strong personal association with him. Now, that all the related physical evidence was disposed of at the site suggests that the assailant believed he may be investigated because of his relationship to the victim, so he had to dispose of the evidence. The dump site being so close to the point of abduction suggests that the assailant knew the area well and lived close by to enable a, enable a quick return to an area of safety. He would also have to have been the site to the site recently to know that there would be water there. Uh, the type of bite marks are most often seen in battered child homicide. The presence of healed injuries on Christopher's body... You know, and Melissa Byers concerned that Christopher is being sexually abused, which she expressed to a school counselor before his death. Medical records reported behavioral problems and Chris's diagnosis with ADD and other behavioral disorders are all strong indicators that he had been physically, if not sexually abused prior to his attack. I would agree. Exactly. And uh, Stephen yeah. Branch had lacerations on his penis, which were probably self-inflicted, indicating a sexualized child usually associated with sex abuse. Now, there were probably two assailants. The primary assailant would have been a man whose focus was directed toward Christopher Byers, and his accomplice may have been male or female, but I'll get into something here in a minute. Three victims would have been easier to control if there were two attackers. The nature and range of injuries to Stephen and Christopher indicate two separate assailants with very different ways of expressing their rage. The battered child nature of the bite marks on Stephen Branch is more often associated with a female offender. The attack on Stephen Branch was more punitive in nature than sexual. The suck mark type of bite marks on Christopher Byers are more sexually oriented. The attack on his genitals suggests an offender who is ashamed of his own sexuality, possibly confused and angered by his own sexual impulses towards males. The offender was punishing Christopher for his sexuality and to establish or reestablish sexual ownership of him. Now, he goes on to give a, um, the characteristics of the primary offender. He would show violent and selfish sexual behaviors, a very selfish and explosive individual with a potentially violent temper, wants to be perceived as not caring how others view him, would be described as hostile, angry, and as someone who carries grudges, would project a macho, heterosexual, in-control image, 
an egocentric individual who cannot tolerate the criticism or shortcomings of others, um, requires instant gratification for his impulses and can react violently when those impulses are not satisfied. He may be glib and superficial and extremely manipulative, dominant in all relationships with women, very possessive and irrational, Irrationally jealous in his sexual relationships, possibly manifesting in violent behavior acted out towards the females in his life, would have a level of knowledge and sophistication in criminal activity through repeated offenses, exposure to law enforcement training and techniques, or previous arrests for similar crimes, and may have spent time in prison or commits petty crimes to support himself. Probably will have past arrests for drugs, violent behavior, and assault. Very likely to have been married more than once. A misogynistic attitude toward women and past relationship would have involved a great deal of physical and or emotional abuse. If married at the time of the offense, the marriage would have been in crisis and his wife may have been the com compliant partner in the crime. It is very likely that the offender would have been involved in the search for the boys, possibly dumping the bodies with the intent of being the one to find them in order to shift blame. Offender will probably have a collection of knives and will possibly have a similar interest in firearms and guns and will probably have a drinking problem or drug habit. Is probably unemployed, unable to hold, hold down a full-time job for a number of behavioral reasons, and he most probably used his own vehicle in this attack, which is most likely to be masculine like a truck. Okay? Now, this profile gave hold no... On. I got a problem with that profile, though, because it said macho and controlling towards women, but... With the way this guy is acting, I would say that he would want to be controlling as well with his male counterparts. <coughs> Being friends and things like that, he's going to want to control that situation. He's going right. to want to be the one who stands out. <coughs> well, Sorry, go ahead. I'm dying. No, that's okay. I think that's when it comes in describing him as hostile and angry. And I believe that the um, possessive and irrational in his sexual relationships with females, I think is what... It was saying. Now, the profile gives no support to the West Memphis PD's interpretation of the crime. And even if all of Turvey's interpretations of the facts were to be discarded, the physical evidence he has revealed would make it virtually impossible for any jury to find Jesse Miskley, Jason Baldwin, and Damian Eccles guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The details of Jesse's confession did not correlate with the facts of the case. The evidence that the children were not murdered in the area they were found in is overwhelming, and his description of James Moore's face being cut with a knife is overruled by the odontologist's idea of the bite marks. Now, as Jesse's confession was a cornerstone of the prosecution's case, its refutation effectively destroys its significance. Now, at six years after the kids were sentenced and one of them was on death row the evidence in the case is not strong enough to support a guilty verdict yet all of their attempts to have their case retried have failed this begs the question though how can this happen isn't the legal system designed to protect the innocent how can it go so terribly wrong the problem is much easier to identify than the solution now, the problems with this case began the moment the bodies were discovered. The lack of experience and professionalism on the part of the police at the crime scene meant that it was not properly protected and vital evidence was either destroyed or not collected at all. The failure to keep the sticks which held the boys' clothing down in the creek is a prime example of this. The removal of the bodies from the creek before the medical examiner had arrived meant the more vital information was lost. 
Now, the same lack of experience was witnessed from the medical examiner's failure to take the temperature of the bodies at the crime scene. The failure to note vital aspects of the victim's injuries further confused the investigators' perception of the crime, which was already clouded by assumptions they had drawn about the situation, based not on scientific facts before them, but on cultural biases, prejudice, and limited experience. Now, once the investigators formed their limited view of the events surrounding the murders, they doggedly pursued any avenues which supported their view. Any information that contradicted it was discarded and deemed irrelevant. Now, vital information regarding the case was openly discussed by the investigators with witnesses, suspects, and the media. Information which should have been known by only the offender and the police was public knowledge, which affected... It severely affected the validity of any information given to witnesses and from witnesses and suspects alike. Now, the failure to consider that the information they were receiving from potential witnesses may have been nothing more than their own information coming back, transformed by the processes of rumor mongering, gave them the false impression that their own interpretations were just being confirmed. In their, you know hurry to get their man and satisfy the community's demand for justice, the investigating police, knowing that their case was weak, used questionable tactics to obtain the corroborative evidence they needed. Now, many witnesses were enticed to testify with the promise of reward money or leniency in other matters, while others were bullied and intimidated into providing the police with the information they wanted to support their theories. Now, once the arrests were made... The adversarial legal system, which sets two opposing sides against each other in a quest to win rather than reveal the truth, worked to reinforce the view of the crime as perceived by the police in the first instance. It was the defense team's job to refute their case and cast doubt in the minds of the jury, which whichever side could tell the best story would win. In this case, the prosecution's job was easier by the amount of media coverage supporting the police view of the crime, which the jury had been subjected to before the trials began. Now, the information that the jurors read in their newspapers and saw on their TV originating from the police sources reinforced the belief that three young boys had been brutally murdered as a part of a satanic ritual. Act, uh, satanic ritual. The media assumed no responsibility to investigate the truth of the information they were given. It was just presumed that the police information was based on evidence and made good, and made good copy for the news. The media reports, quote, confirmed an already widely held belief in the community that satanic cults were a real threat to its safety and few would have questioned the conclusions drawn by the police. Now, a guilty verdict was only a course that could be taken to allow this community to feel safe again, to feel that they had the power to overcome an evil, and until Jesse, Jason, and Damien were arrested, nameless enemy. Now, the fight to have the guilty verdict reversed would require that the judicial system, intrinsically bureaucratic in nature, look within itself and acknowledge its own weaknesses and shortcomings. Any admission of its own failure will only occur under extreme public pressure and outrage at the injustice which has occurred. It takes time for that process to occur. Statistically, that can take up to 10 years. Jesse and Jason have a lifetime, but whether Damien's time will run out before this slow process is complete had yet to be seen. Now, as of 2002, I'm sorry, the end of 2002, the controversy continued on this case. Um, 
because another book was published at the end, end of 2002 and seemingly launched from the questions raised in the HBO documentaries and offering what author Maura Levert claims as, quote, the true story. In Devil's Knot, Levert again lays out the case of the murders of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. However, her clear bias detracts from the book's larger impact. It would have been better if she told the story in a way that it unfolded without giving her own personal commentary so she could let the reader decide. Um, she chose instead to interpret for the reader those things that seem significant for her own ideas about their case. In addition, she makes the defendants into innocents, their defenders into tireless heroes, and everyone else on the other side into backwoods ignoramuses who performed inept investigations, exaggerated evidence, and covered up the crimes of another suspect. Now, there isn't any doubt that judge in this case who acted like a referee deciding in favor of only one team that we have a state legal system that's blind to serious legal problems and that we have serious flaws in both the investigation and prosecution however not all of those who speak out for the defendants are without flaws we have a criminal profiler for example who interprets pathology evidence of crime scene photos well outside his expertise and who has been as much criticized for his self-promotion as his, as has the prosecution's self-styled expert in satanic crimes. Now, Leverett goes after one, but does not question the other. Her seeming reluctance to examine both sides equally hurts her case. Um, and actually, lends credence to that she's uh, writing this book as an activist and not a journalist. Now, to be... You know, just so we're clear that these three victims were battered and murdered on May 5th, well, 1993, and one was sexually mutilated. And three other boys were arrested, convicted, based principally on the confession of one. Everything hinged on Jesse Miskley's trial, in which his confession was clearly shown to be inconsistent and flawed. Although the jury was still persuaded, it was authentic and not coerced. Now, while Leverett says that they did not get to hear the full testimony of the defense's key witness on coerced confessions of Dr. Richard Ofshi. The trial records indicate that the jury certainly did hear his ideas about the techniques used to get the confession. He quoted from a study in the Stanford Law Review in which juries had, had convicted an innocent person in 350 cases and 19% of those convictions were based on false confessions. He also described the techniques of coercion used to obtain those confessions. Now, you know, Miskley also did not have a lawyer present, which was a clear violation of his rights as a juvenile. Yet this went through the system anyway, even on appeal, and kept the machine rolling into the trial of Jason and Damien. Now, the case was weakest against Jason, who only had, he had no criminal record and only a superficial association with Damien, but who Miskley claimed had been the most brutal of the three. No one quite knows why Miskley felt so compelled to provide such graphic detail of the brutality inflicted. And his conclusion after years in prison that if you don't, didn't do it, don't ever admit that you did, is incomprehensibly idiotic <laughs> under any circumstance. Yet the prosecution and jury seemed most bent on locking up Damien, who had a prof professed interest in witchcraft, who had admitted to drinking blood, and who preferred to read horror novels. He was also bipolar and took medications to alleviate depression. The second trial focused on the alleged participation of the killers in the dark arts or the occult, rather than any telling physical evidence. It's true that a suspect knife was found buried in a lake near Damien's house. Um, 
one even hints that it was planted by the authorities and that some fibers seemed consistent enough to link the defendants to the victims. But the case against them was made primarily on the fabricated testimonies of people who later changed their stories. Now, HBO, I told you HBO uh, produced two documentaries. One of them was aired in 1996, the other one in 2000. And the officials reacted, claiming that the program was biased and incomplete. The residents of West Memphis were also insulted. They claimed that outsiders just did not understand. Yet many of these so-called outsiders, appalled at the outright, outright ignorance displayed in the films, flung further insults back at this seemingly suffragist community where people still believed in a literal devil. Um, let's see here. Throughout the early part of... Um, oh, wait, no. Never... Blah, 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 blah. Uh, much like the hundreds of children in the... Oh, wait. I skipped a part. Nevertheless, the shocking problems with the investigation are persuasively laid out in this book, along with the social hysteria during the 80s and early 90s about widespread organized networks of Satanists. The way the media immediately assumed that monstrous evil was behind the gruesome murders indicates prominent news networks and magazines as much as it does the inept justice system in Arkansas. Other potential suspects, including one who confessed, were ignored, and several officials involved appeared not only to have been unqualified for their positions, but to some extent were outright voyeurs. Now, they seemed, as, as the author portrayed, to take great pleasure in the salacious details that they imagined about the murders. Apparently, a psychologist who assessed the so-called ringleader was not nearly as alarmed. Even Damien's supposed drinking of blood from friends seemed merely an adolescent fad. This was much like the hundreds of children in the McMartin preschool case. Remember that in the 80s? That occupied the 1980s in California where seven people's lives were ruined because untrained social workers coached children to create false scenarios of abuse. The story told by Miskley, who claimed that he and his two cohorts killed the three victims, was both inconsistent with the evidence and, put, and patently absurd, yet adults wanted to believe them. Investigators also seem to think that this confession was their best shot at closing the case. Even though he recanted at one point, the momentum was too, too you know, substantial to just let it go. So this book, while undermining itself in places, is a good study of the social psychology of a bad investigation, where so little means so much. Now, Damien actually had a perfectly good alibi, but the tug to pin this on Satan was so strong in a conservative religious community like West Memphis. So Damien did say some things that were taken to mean he had knowledge about the crime. To some extent, he heard his own case. Not only that, he adopted an air of alienated adolescent who viewed himself as socially disaffected, even bad. Few jury members were charmed. However, according to Leverett, a However, she accepts the superficial media grouping of Damien Eccles' favorite authors, Anne Rice, Dean Koontz, and Stephen King. They are all labeled horror writers, yet only King can truly be called that. Most of Koontz's novels emphasize the way ordinary people rise up to meet larger-than-life bad guy and defeat them. They end on a high note. Anne Rice creates universes for vampire characters, but they are more clearly in the genre of vampire romance than they are horror. She also has a family of witches who figured out who figured at that time in three novels and Eccles had said many times that he was interested in witchcraft in witchcraft in the religious sense, not in the satanic sense. Kuntz has only one book in which a character builds an altar to Satan and that character is destroyed. Rice has no such books. 
until one understands the distinction among the authors and then takes the time to learn what Damien likes so much about these books, there's no way to know whether and how they might have influenced him in any way. Um, let's see. Okay, um, let's, okay, now, but there is an update. Um, they were able to, as a, after the week, they negotiated with, you know, to try to get the appeals to go through. And after weeks of negotiations on October 19, 2011, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskley were released from prison as part of a plea deal, making the hearings ordered by the Arkansas Supreme Court unnecessary. The three entered into what's called an Alford plea. And Stephen Braga, an attorney with Ropes and Gray, who took up Eccles' defense on a pro bono basis beginning in 2009, negotiated the plea agreement with the prosecutors. So under the deal, Judge David Laser vacated the previous convictions, including the capital murder convictions for Eccles and Baldwin, and ordered a new trial. Each man then entered an Alfred plea to lesser charges of first and secondary murder while verbally stating their innocence. Judge Lasser then sentenced them to time served, a total of 18 years and 78 days. And they were each given a suspended imposition of a sentence for 10 years. So if they reoffended, they could be sent back to prison for 21 years. Now, factors cited by the prosecutor, Scott Ellington, for agreeing to the plea deal included that two of the victim's families had joined the cause of the defense, that the mother of a witness who testified about Eccles' confession had questioned her daughter's truthfulness, and that the state crime lab employee who collected fiber evidence at the Eccles and Baldwin homes after their arrest had died. As part of the plea deal, the three men cannot pursue civil action against the state for wrongful imprisonment. Now, many of their supporters and opponents still believe, who still believe them are guilty were unhappy with the unusual plea, in, um, unusual plea deal. In 2011, supporters pushed Arkansas Governor Mike Beebe to, part, to pardon Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskley based on their innocence. He said that he would deny the request unless there was an evidence showing someone else committed the murders. Prosecutor Scott Ellington said the Arkansas State Crime Lab would help seek other suspects by running searches on any DNA evidence produced in a private lab test during the defense team's investigation. This would include running the results through FBI's CODIS. Now, um, Ellington said that although he still considered the men guilty, the three would likely be acquitted if a new trial were held because of the powerful legal counsel representing them now and the loss of evidence over time and the change of heart among some of the witnesses. Um, that's all I have on this case. But if you watch the documentaries, the person who screams that whole profile is the stepfather. The stepfather one of the victims? Yeah. Oh, wow. The John Mark Byers screams it like he's hostile towards people. He, um, yeah, he's just really, and he's like constantly saying, you know, them devil worshipers. And then in the second film, he's on their side. It was really weird. And trying to attack the father of another kid. Well, he saw Jesus or something. I don't know. I don't know either. But yeah, it's like, but that first movie. I'm the sorry first, about all the coughing, man. I just had oh, a no, coughing fit. I'm still sick. You're fine. <laughs> the, um, but the first documentary that they did in 1996, like, fit this guy to a T. So, but I think it's kind of weird how they're trying the, he thinks that one of the attackers was a woman. 
It could be. I mean, yeah, we've seen most, it before. That's not the most bizarre thing we've ever seen. No, but you know, with the but I I kind of thought it too when they were describing the injuries before I knew a whole lot more that it sounded more like it was to cover up sex abuse. And that's what it sounds like to me, honestly. Yeah, it sounded like that to me from the very beginning. Yeah, because as kids get older, they're going to start talking. And they're no longer appealing. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's that. So. Gross, man. Fucking gross. I know. That's what I'm saying, too. But I honestly do not think that these three kids were anywhere near involved. <coughs> it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. I just think that, you know, it was like a lynch mob after them. You know? <coughs> so. But do you have anything to add? I don't. I'm dizzy from having a coughing fit. I know. That sounded horrible. I feel bad it for you. It was bad. I'm, for those of you that don't know, I wasn't at my desk for most of the time because I was dying. He was I coughing. I just got back from fucking urgent care. <laughs> he didn't go to urgent care while we were doing this episode. Well, yeah. just before we got, <laughs> did the episode, dumbass. I know, but you made it sound like I just got back from urgent care and sat down at my desk and I'm ready to go now. <laughs> that's pretty much what I did. All right. Let's wrap this one up. Even though I, it's only a 30-minute episode. Oh, that's fine. Remember, boys and girls, send us an email. Brutal Nation, twistedbluellc.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join Citizens of Brutal Nation. Interact with us. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, this show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying. Thieving bastards. bastards. And we'll talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.